All right, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. Beginning at verse 1, now hear the words of the one true and living God. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? when there's the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Judge not. End of sermon. You can go home, right? Isn't that where people leave it? Doesn't our modern Western world want us to believe that? That the cardinal sin is expressing disapproval of someone else's choices or behavior? This was originally going to be just one sermon covering this passage, but it's turned into three. (laughs) We're going to spend some time here over the next three weeks because I think this is something we as Christians have to be able to get right. And and just preaching one sermon on it and and moving on leaves too much on the table. We, We need to be able to address all of it and look at it from all sides. We need to be able to discuss it when we get together in our community groups and really digest it. We need to do all that. We need to take our time, marinate on it, really get it before we move on if we're going to be the salt and the light that Jesus calls us to be in chapter 5. So I know it messes up the bulletins. We had all those printed in advance. Uh, so for the rest of February, that'll, that'll be messed up a little bit, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll manage somehow. We've got to be able to take our time and understand Jesus' teaching here because the world is counseling us to judge not. Threatening us to judge not. And the world does not mean it in the same sense Jesus means it. The world is not on Jesus' side. We can't believe them when they claim to be citing our sources. When they condemn us for upholding the truth of what God's word clearly teaches. Doesn't the world today... Hasn't it always, but doesn't it today, want us to believe that virtue is really found somewhere in the middle of every road where vice and virtue are indistinguishable? Aren't we to believe that those things are just entirely subjective anyway? Aren't we lectured by God-haters to practice what we preach? Aren't Christians supposed to preach tolerance above all else? Isn't that what your Jesus taught when he said, do not judge, you hypocrites? People say, you Christians should be more like your Jesus. And that's true. 
They say, your religion says not to judge. That's what your Jesus says. You can't judge people. Only God can judge me. Or, you know, the Oprah Winfrey, Don Lemon types, uh, God wouldn't judge me. He doesn't do that. Or there is no God, and so he, he, not even he can judge me. People who believe that, that there is no God and there is no judgment for them, still use this verse to say, you shouldn't judge people. It's the verse of the Bible every atheist believes and that everyone has memorized. But Jesus says more after that, doesn't he? He doesn't stop at judge not. We can't just take, just pluck two words out of six verses and then leave out all the other 128 words. Surely they mean something too. Surely Jesus intends to elaborate on what he says when he says judge not. So what does he say about judging? That's what I want for us to spend some time on over the next few weeks. The first thing we're going to look at this morning is very positive. Uh, we're going to see how gospel transformation works. It works from the inside out. It starts from recognizing our standing as sinners before a holy and righteous judge. And that awareness transforms us. And as it does, it brings about transformation around us. The next week we'll talk about the judgment of God. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. By whom? Not people. God. And so there's something, there's something more to it than just judge not. He's not just saying, do not judge anyone ever. It's a warning about how we judge, isn't it? We shouldn't be so quick to judge. So lastly, when we judge, not if we judge, when we judge, we judge according to a righteous standard and not our own. That'll be week three, okay? How Christians are called to judge, we'll cover some, how, how Christians are to judge those inside the church and those outside the church because we're not gonna pretend that it's even Stephen all the same all the time. Okay? So we have our work cut out for us, but I'm confident that the Holy Spirit will shed light on this for us so that, we, so that we're able with humility and good conscience to know how to make proper God-honoring, societally beneficial judgments. The Lord's counsel here is not that we should never judge under any circumstances. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to make sense of, we're supposed to understand the circumstances well and to make appropriate judgments. Let's start out with some big, 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 uh, excuse me, bigger picture stuff. Let's move uh, from the more general to the more specific as we go through this. So first, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but the way that the whole Sermon on the Mount is, is developing and unfolding looks like this. In chapter 5... He's talking about the kingdom of God very, very specifically and, and all that entails, particularly in relation to the law of God. And then in chapter 6, which we just wrapped up, he's, he's 
framing everything that he's already said and everything he's about to say around this fundamental idea that his followers must be able to grab onto with both hands and take to heart. And that is that we have God as our Heavenly Father and we are his children. He wants us to know the freedom and assurance that awareness affords us that should inform our understanding about ourselves, other people, the world, everything in it, what life is all for. Now in chapter 7, he's emphasizing the judgment of God. He's giving warnings so that we watch the way we walk. And here, what we're focused on this morning is this notion that he's cautioning us, it's your walk you need to be most concerned with. Gospel transformation, the kingdom of God coming into the world, begins from the inside out. It starts with God acting upon your will and your will being transformed. It starts with you changing your mind about God before you change anyone else's mind about God. It starts with you changing your mind about your values before you go trying to reorder everyone else's values. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Why is it so easy for you to notice the sin in someone else and so hard for you to notice the sin in you? How is it that you so quickly and so easily and so habitually overlook your own sin, but you're so quick to point it out in someone else? Why can't you be as quick to overlook someone else's sin? Why can't it be your habit to extend as much grace to others as you do to yourself? If you like people to give you the benefit of the doubt, shouldn't it be your default, Christian, to be willing to give other people the benefit of the doubt? Especially those of us who are brothers and sisters in the church. As brothers and sisters in this church family. We're, we're always supposed to view one another in the most favorable light possible. I mean, you want to talk about innocent until proven guilty. How much more so in the church? Okay. Jesus says, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, he says. You hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How sensitive is the eye? Can you touch your own eye without tearing up? Some of y'all wear contacts, you're like, every day, right? I can't do it. I don't want to touch my eye. People flip their eyelids up and stuff like that. Uh-uh, freaks me out. How sensitive is the eye? How sensitive is the human soul? And you want to go to work on somebody else's before you go to work on your own? Jesus says, why don't you focus all of that attention you're giving to someone else's sin on your own sin? How about you get angry with your sin the way you get angry with everyone else's sin? What if your own sin offended you as much as your husband's does, ladies? 
What if your own sin offended you as much as your wife's does, gentlemen? What if your sin offended you more than your boss's sin offended you? Or the cashiers, or the guy who cut you off in traffic? What then? What might the world be like if everyone was more offended by their own sin and worked as hard to drive it out of themselves as they did to drive it out of everyone else around them? What kind of world would that be? Reminds me of a story about G.K. Chesterton. A lot of you probably may have heard. Uh, there was a newspaper soliciting responses to, from its readers to the question, what is wrong with the world? And you can imagine, naturally, people would have said wars, greed, uh, crime, injustice, things like this. In your opinion, what is wrong with the world today? Chesterton replies, dear sir, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> what if we thought that way? I think that's the way Jesus is teaching his disciples to think a little bit, don't you? Don't be so quick to point out there somewhere that there, there's no question there's evil out there too. And you need to be able to recognize it as evil. We'll, we'll get into that in later sermons, right? We, you know, we can't call good evil and evil good. That'd be evil. We've got to be able to distinguish between the two. So it's a later sermon, something, something important to touch on. We have to be able to judge to know the difference. But what if before concentrating your efforts on all the evil out there and in everyone else, you start right here with yourself? Wouldn't you be in a better position to think clearly? Wouldn't you see more clearly? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Did he say, don't trouble yourself with taking the speck out of your brother's eye? Leave that alone. I'll take care of it. No. That's not what he said. You're supposed to see there's a speck that shouldn't be there in your brother's eye and to care that there's a speck in your brother's eye. And the loving thing to do would be to tell him, hey, bro, you've got a speck in your eye. I'd like to help you remove that so it stops troubling you, so it stops hindering you from your walk with Christ. See how that's different? You know, it's not point and condemn. Righteous judgment isn't going, speck! <laughs> you know? There's something you know about wrestling with your own sin that equips you for the task of being used as a tool in your Redeemer's hand to help someone else with theirs. Jesus' counsel to us here is that our judgment should be humble and helpful, not hypocritical. Most of all, as you consider the kingdom of God coming into the world and the renewal that it brings, as you consider your relationship to God as your father, uh, and as you pray for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, you look for it in the way you walk with him. You want to see the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven? Look for it in your own life. 
Look for it in your home and in your families, parents. Is his will being done at home as it is in heaven? If it isn't, quit complaining about how it's not being done in everyone else's home and in their businesses and on the government level. You want holy senators and state house reps who exercise their God-given role, God-given role in the fear of the Lord? Start cultivating holy homes, holy churches, holy communities, and holy towns. Gospel transformation works from the inside out. You may be familiar with this quote. It gets used a lot. I, I know it gets used a lot. I'm aware of this, okay? But this guy, Alexis de Tocqueville, you heard this quote before? And he was a uh, French diplomat and a political scientist who visited the United States in the early 1800s, and he was just amazed at the success of America. And here's his famous quote from that time. This is what he observed. He says, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. The systems didn't give rise to the greatness Goodness, godliness, gave rise to the greatness. We don't need more systems or programs or more education or more political reform. We need more Jesus. All of the time and everywhere, we need more Jesus in our own lives. And the more of him there is in our lives, the more we see him at work in us and those closest to us, the more we might be able to expect to see more of him outside of our homes and churches. Gospel transformation happens from the inside out. This, this kingdom Jesus keeps talking about, the one he says himself is, is like, a, like a, grows from a little mustard seed into a big tree, like a, a little leaven in a lump of dough that leavens the whole loaf. It starts small and it grows big. It starts from the inside and it moves outward. It starts with God choosing to set his love on you. Christ purchasing redemption for you by his blood. And the Holy Spirit applying that redemption to you and changing you. And when he does that in the lives of his people, it changes things. That sounds hard. It's easier to point out there at what everyone else is doing and blame them for why I'm unhappy. That's true. Hypocrisy is easy. But it's also plain silly. 
Jesus, Jesus shows us how silly it is in his illustration about the guy with the log in his eye who goes to his brother with the speck in his eye. Can you imagine a man with a two-by-four sticking out of his eyeball, going up to his brother and complaining about a little speck of sawdust he's got in his? What Jesus alerts you to here is your ability and propensity, how ready and willing you are to drag that plank around by your eyeball, scraping it along the sidewalk as you go, to walk up and find fault in somebody else. That's what we're prone to do. It doesn't sound easy, but you make it look so easy. Hypocrisy is so easy. But what Jesus wants us to see is that hypocrisy is ridiculous. It's a, it's a hilarious illustration. We, we should laugh at how absurd that is. And then applying that back to ourselves and our treatment of others, we should be ashamed. Every bit as, as ashamed as, as a man with a gaping head wound should be in condemning somebody with a paper cut. Hypocrisy comes easy to us, and Jesus wants us to be aware of it. He wants us to be at least as angry with your, your own sin as you are with others. Uh, that will ensure your judgment is a righteous judgment, and that's not something Jesus condemns. That righteous judgment is not something Jesus condemns. Again, more on that later in coming weeks, but the reason there's nothing wrong with that is because it brings about healing. Okay? It doesn't bring about hurt, it brings healing. It's being salt and light is what it is. If you remember that sermon on salt and light, we said that salt helps good things grow and keeps bad things from growing. Remember that? You know, you can't do that without judging. What are the good things? What are the bad things? What's light? What's darkness? You can't, can't figure that out without judgment. But our judgment must be a righteous judgment according to God's standard and not our own. And it starts with us. We don't look for it to happen out there before we look for it happening right here in our own lives, in our own families, in our own church, in our own towns. So we are to judge after all, aren't we? It's not just judge not, period, end of sermon. We must judge. Jesus isn't telling his disciples to not judge. It's self-righteousness Jesus is warning us against here. That's the issue. That's the real danger. That's what we're most prone to do. We climb up on our high horse, look down our nose at everybody else. He's warning against that kind of hypocrisy. And think about it for a second. Who are the hypocrites that he's called out by name repeatedly throughout the Sermon on the Mount? The Pharisees. Right? Don't be like them. How many times do you guys say it? Don't be like the Pharisees who yada, 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 hypocrites. Don't be like them. We're not to be like the Pharisees running around judging others with an air of superiority like they did. We're not supposed to be fault-finding people in the church. We're not supposed to go around eagerly pointing out each other's deficiencies and shortcomings. You've got them. I've got them in spades. You know, it, we, we don't go around trying to pull on those threads and unraveling that sweater. We don't do that. It's destructive. We're not to be fault-finding people in the church. 
We're supposed to be eager to find out our own sin before we're eager to find out anybody else's. Um, so, something my dad told me one time, just stuck with me, just one of these little dad things, you know, you got the dad things that just kind of stick with you forever. Uh, I was complaining when I was, uh, I was a younger Christian about somebody else in the church, and I didn't like how they blah, 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 blah. He goes, well, son, you know, that's just what sin looks like on them. Hmm. What's sin look like on me? Isn't that the question it brings you to? Turns that back around on yourself. What's sin look like on me? If that's what it looks like on him, what's it look like on me? That's what Jesus wants us to think about. When we're in the habit of doing that, examining ourselves, that situates us in a, in a posture of humility, not hypocrisy. And the result is it makes us helpful in building up the kingdom of God. And that means, that means addressing sin, though, doesn't it? It doesn't mean ignoring sin. The world wants you to ignore it. Judge not. Jesus wants it addressed. Does Jesus want sin addressed? He addresses it in his word. He addresses it through his people and by his spirit. But the place he really faced it head on was the cross, wasn't it? That's why any of us are here this morning. That's why the bread and the cup are going to be offered to you in a few minutes. His body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's a proclamation by his death that we're not all right, but it is finished. There's work to be done in us and through us, but his work in redeeming us and paying the full price is finished. And we're reminded of that finality every time we do this together. We proclaim his coming until he returns. So as some of you know, we're going to do this a little bit differently this morning. So I'm going to go over a little how this is going to work. And we're doing it a little bit differently this morning than we're going to do it all other mornings moving forward, as a matter of fact, because this. Um, but our overall goal and, and what sort of we're, we're, we're changing with, with how we do the Lord's Supper is we want one big table. Because we're one big family. And we want to come as one big family around one big table to partake of the Lord's Supper. All right? So you'll, you'll come up all together. Get in where you fit in. Don't walk, run. <laughs> get in where you fit in. Eat and drink up here and then return back to your seat and we'll pray. Okay? Once I've read the words of institution and prayed over the elements, they're yours for the taking. You don't need to receive them from my hand or anyone else's. You're receiving them from Jesus' own hand. You'll see the bread and the juice in front of you, and you're invited to come and to take and eat. And then once you have, you'll exit this morning this way. We'll come down these two aisles, and then you're going to exit down this aisle to go back to your seat. And there's a basket right there you can put your cup in. And then once everyone has been served and sat down, then I'll close with some prayer. Right? A quick reminder that